All right, uh, welcome back to RUF. I can't believe it's November. We've got two RUFs left, and then the Christmas party on the 30th. It's kind of hard to believe it's gone that quick. And let me just encourage you. You're tired. You're ready to be done. The honeymoon is over. Uh, It's a drag right now. I understand that. And the temptation is, is to push out of your life the thing that you need the most. Why do I know that? It's because it's my temptation as well. When things uh, get hard and the projects and life starts kind of bearing down on you, we want to push away and grab it by the horns and say, I'm going to do it. God, I'm going to take over now. And that's the thing we don't need to do because Psalm 19 says that this book is what revives our soul. And normally at this time of the semester, what tends to happen is prayer, word, all those things go on the shelf and we start trying to do it on our own. And I just want to encourage you to not neglect the thing that you need the most and that's to be with Jesus and to come to things like RUF and hear him speak to us through his word. And so, uh, that's just a word of encouragement as you seek to try to finish strong this semester. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 19, verse 11. Some of you are going, oh no, what happened? We were in the Old Testament. Yes, we're taking a little bit of a break. And I thought I was going to be back in the Old Testament uh, tonight. We're doing Jesus according to the Old Testament or the Gospel according to Old Testament and looking at how all of Scripture is about Jesus. It points to Him. Uh, But last week we spent some time in the New Testament for a break and this week uh, we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation and mainly because I'm just excited about this passage. And Uh, Chris Wells, the guy that leads our worship, that does an excellent job. We meet every week and we talk about this service and plan and pray. And we started talking about this passage and I just got really pumped up about it. Um, I'm a Braveheart kind of movie guy, Patriot, you know, those type of movies, Gladiator. And Jesus riding in on the white horse is just like one of those movies, and uh, I just got pumped about it, and so I studied it this week, and we're going to talk about that tonight, and we'll be back in the Old Testament, and we'll finish up our series uh, in the next couple weeks. So, Revelation 19, Uh, let me just give you a little context for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives, is a book that gives us multiple angles on the same event. I'm a huge football fan. I'm a huge sports fan. I like college football. I like NFL football. And if you watched football this weekend at all, or if you watch it uh, often, almost every game there's a close play, right? A close call. Where, you know, the touchdown, you know, you see the guy, did he cross the line uh, to go in for the touchdown? Did he make it? Did he make the first down? Did he make the catch and stay in bounds? Did, uh, who recovered the fumble, right? It, it wasn't clear. And so anytime you get a close call and you're watching a game, what happens? Well, the network that's covering the game does what? Gives you all these different angles on the play 
to help see what really happened, right? And what happens is the referee will get a call down from the booth, and he, they're discussing it, trying to figure out what the play, you know, what, what the call really is. Or if you're in the NFL, you know, you go over and you get under the hood and they're watching all these different angles. And then the referee goes out into the middle of the field and he looks up at the, into the stands and he turns on his microphone and he makes a declaration of confidence, right? And he makes the call and he says, touchdown. And that is exactly what John is doing in the book of Revelation. John is on an island in Patmos. And he has given us seven different angles on the same event. Seven different angles on the second coming of Jesus. The conquest of Christ. His return. And he comes to the churches that's talked about in the first few chapters of Revelation, and he comes to you tonight. And he makes a declaration, and he says, we win. And we win because Jesus wins. And tonight, the Apostle John gives us a fresh angle on the same things, the second coming and things that he's been talking about in this book. And this time, the angle is war. Follow along with me as I read God's Word. Revelation 19, verses 11 through, 22, through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems... And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following along, or following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes the sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 
This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, um, this is a challenging passage. But for believers in Jesus Christ, this is also a very encouraging passage. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that you would use this passage to bring them to faith, to convict them of their sin, and to show them um, who you really are. Father, would you show us who you really are tonight? And may we see you in a fresh way, in a new way, and in a powerful way. And would it lead us to worship? Would it lead us to change and transformation and repentance over our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we dig in to our passage specifically, just a couple of reminders. Revelation is not an almanac that lays out detailed facts about history. It's not even a chronological history. It's not a crossword puzzle that we are to put things together and try to figure it out and fill in the blanks. No, Revelation is art. Revelation is poetic imagery. And it's imagery that invites us into the reality to which it portrays. And tonight, John invites us into the reality of this vision of Jesus. This vision of King Jesus who comes and conquers all things in his second coming. If you look at Revelation 19 and you have your Bible, look with me up at the beginning of 19. First of all, John shows us a wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then immediately following that, in verse 11, John shows us a picture of war. Why do we need both a wedding and a war? Well, this is why, because every single one of us wants that, right? Every single one of us wants someone who will delight over us and be affectionate and loving and caring for us. And we want someone who will defend us and fight for us. We both, if you're honest, you want a groom and you want a warrior. You want a groom who will woo you with his love and affection, but you also want a warrior who will win for you and fight for you. Tonight, we're going to look at Jesus the warrior, specifically. Why? Well, because we desperately need a warrior who will defend us and fight for us, don't we? If we're honest, every single one of us feels the angst and the anxiety that is deep in our hearts. And it overwhelms us when we think about the broken world and the things that we experience in life. And here's what easily starts to happen. It happens with me. As I start to look around at the world and I get depressed. And I'm like, this is hopeless. There's no way evil is going to conquer good, it seems. It seems that the war war cannot be won. Do you feel that way? 
What is alarming you tonight about life? What is causing you anxiety? Is it grades? Worried that you're not going to make the cut at Sanford? Is it your health? Maybe some of you are struggling with depression. Could it be your own singleness? You're a senior and you're looking at life and you're thinking, is there anybody out there for me? Maybe it's a struggling or a broken relationship. Or maybe your anxiety is coming from your own heart and the sin and the rebellion that you feel day in and day out. You see, all of us, to one degree or another, at this very moment, are facing something that feels invincible. And we need courage and we need strength as we look at life. And go through it. And John says, if that is you, what we need more than anything else is a big vision of Jesus. We need to see a big Christ. And that is exactly his solution for us in this passage. And he shows us this big vision of Jesus by asking us to consider five things. If you have an outline... On the back of your announcement sheet, you'll see that if you're a note taker. He asks us to consider his name, his crown, his horse, his weapon, and his victory. We'll go through those very quickly. Look at, first of all, his name, verse 11 through 16. This is the second time in the book of Revelation that John writes about seeing the heavens open up. The other time was in chapter 4. This time, however, John doesn't enter up into heaven as he normally does in the book. But instead, what happens? Look at the passage. He sees Jesus on a white horse along with his army coming down out of heaven to fight this war and to take on his enemies. Look at verse 11. Let's look at his name. It says that this one on the white horse is faithful and true. This Jesus is the true one. He is faithful. He's true and it stands in contrast to Satan who's described in the Bible as the father of lies. This Jesus is faithful he will make good on his promises. Every single one of them he will keep. His name is faithful and true. Look at verse 12. But then it says, He has a name written that no one knows but himself. There's knowledge to knowing someone's name, right? You know something about them. But Jesus is supreme. And he can't be known exhaustively. There is a sense in which he can't be known as he truly and fully is. He has a name that no one else knows. He is supreme. Look at verse 13. His name is the Word of God. Jesus says, or John says, which is interesting, in John chapter 1 in his gospel, he says Jesus comes and Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. 
Jesus is the Word of God. Then look at verse 16. He calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one greater than this Jesus. He rules the nations, it says in verse 15, with an iron scepter. Psalm chapter 2 says that he laughs and mocks his enemies. First, when you're anxious about life, consider his name. Secondly, consider his crown. Look at verse 12. The monarchs and kings in the first century, they wore many different crowns in order to symbolize their rule over many nations. Jesus here wears a crown. Many crowns symbolizing his rule over the entire world. His rule over every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. Consider his name, consider his crown, and then thirdly, consider his horse. This is when it gets good. Look at verse 11. It says that, Behold, he saw the rider on the white horse. White represented victory. When someone mounted a white horse, it represented ultimate victory. It was a declaration, a victorious declaration. And notice here, Jesus isn't becoming the warrior. Jesus is the warrior. And he mounts this white horse in victory because of the cross. Remember what Jesus rode into Jerusalem as he was going to his death? What did he ride in on? He rode in on a donkey. And after the cross and after his suffering and his resurrection, Jesus mounts the white horse. Did you see it? He's declaring ultimate victory over sin and death and evil and Satan. When someone mounts the white horse, the victory is not up for grabs. The battle isn't up for grabs. It is done. Jesus triumphs. But here's the part that blows me away. Who else triumphs? Who else is riding the white horses? We are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are riding the white horse and you are following along behind him. Look at verse 14. It tells us that the armies of heaven were also riding white horses and they were dressed how? They were dressed in wedding gowns. Look at that, fine linen. That was heard up in Revelation 19, verse 8. If you look up to verse 8, those riding with Jesus were the same people that were at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those riding with Jesus on white horses are the bride of Christ, and they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you look at verse 8, it was a righteousness that has been granted to them. It has nothing to do with their own efforts. But look at something else, verse 14. Who's riding in front of this army? Jesus is. 
You know, oftentimes we think that we fight for Jesus. That we're somehow doing it. No. Look at the passage. We follow. We follow and engage with Him. Jesus leads us. He is riding in front. He is leading the way. And that should give us confidence as we face the pain of living in a broken world and all the things that we're struggling with tonight. It should give us confidence because our king doesn't ride in the back and say, okay, guys, y'all go ahead and get on with the battle and I'm just going to stand back and, and let you go for it. No, not Jesus. Jesus fights for us. He leads the way in our battles. Fourthly, let's consider his weapon. Look at verses 13, 15, and 21. Paul says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Meaning that when this warrior spoke, it was the very words of God, not his own. He didn't speak his own words, but he spoke God's Word. And here's what's interesting. Look at the passage. He has no other weapon. <laughs> no other weapon but his word. His word is this warrior's only weapon. Jesus speaks and it's done. Look at this passage. There's no detail of a gruesome battle, right? John doesn't talk about this battle and this gruesome war like... We're all bloodied and Jesus has been, you know, stabbed and he's bleeding and we barely win. <laughs> no! That's not it. This warrior shows up and he simply speaks. Boom. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet are instantly captured and thrown into the lake of fire. His word is powerful. Look at verse 21. That's a sobering verse. But it says, His word also lays bare all non-believers. And my question is, is do you believe that His word is enough? Are you using the Word of God to bring the kingdom to bear. You see the power here? Are you using it to bring the kingdom to bear on Sanford University and on the community around you? It's the warrior's only weapon. And it is also his followers' only weapon. Lastly, let's look at his victory. Verse 17 through 21. This is a sobering picture. Here John contrasts the feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast earlier in Revelation 19, with the feast of the birds. And this feast of the birds here that we read about in 17 through 21 is really sobering. Look at it. It says that the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And his followers 
were killed by the sword. Look at verse 21. They were slain and their bodies weren't even given a decent burial. You with me? In fact, the birds of prey come down and pick apart their flesh. Friends, this is what happens to people that don't know Jesus. And that should shake us to our core and cause us to weep. And it also forces me to ask, which feast are you a part of? Are you a part of the feast of the birds? Or are you a part of the feast of the lamb? And before you answer too quickly, yes, I'm a part of the feast of the lambs. My question is, does your life reflect it? Does your life look like a follower of Jesus And if you say, yes, I'm a part of the Feast of the Lambs. Yes, my life reflects it. Here's my next thing. Then you should fall down on your face and worship and give thanks to God. Because if you're sitting at the table of the great wedding feast, it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of your own effort and your own righteousness. It's because of His grace and His mercy alone. And because of that, we should throw our hands up and say, Thank you for your goodness to me, Lord, and for your grace and mercy in my life. This is a powerful picture of Jesus. It's a picture of a king and a warrior Shining in all of its glory. And it makes me think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You know the scene when Susan, who is known for being a little bit too concerned with her own safety and well-being, goes to Mr. Beaver and she says, she's talking about Aslan, and she says, is Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, is he safe, Mr. Beaver? You've heard the story. Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. You see, John in this passage gives us a picture of Jesus, but he's not safe. He's not simple. He's not tame, but he is good. And this picture that we see in Revelation 19 should affect us in three ways. Three application points and we're done. First of all, it should lead us to worship. This picture should cause us to be undone and to fall on our face in worship. First of all, for the powerful king that he is in the picture of Jesus, but it should also cause us to worship out of thankfulness. Again, for His grace and mercy in our life. Secondly, it should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to repentance over our inadequate views of Jesus. Because you see, this is not a Santa Claus. This is not an old senile grandfather. This is not a genie in a bottle who gives us what we want when we want. No, this is a king 
that is shining in all of its glory, a warrior that fights for his people. And we should repent for making Jesus into, into our own image instead of worshiping him as he truly is. And then secondly, we should repent over our lack of love for the lost. We should repent over our hard hearts, over people that don't know Jesus. Because the truth is, every single one of us, including me, has wept over a lot of things in life. But have you ever wept over people that will spend eternity in hell? If not, we need to repent. And look afresh at the sobering picture of the end times that Jesus gives us. And then lastly, should cause us to worship and repent. But also it should give us courage, right? It should give us confidence as we face the pain and the struggles of life. Oftentimes when we have these struggles and things that we're going through, if you're like me, I get preoccupied with the struggles, right? I get consumed with my circumstances instead of looking at Jesus. And when I get consumed with my circumstances, I say, well, they're not really that bad. Or I get hopeless. I feel defeated. And Jesus says, look, no, don't deny your struggles. They're real. We do live in a broken world. But don't forget this passage. I am the triumphant warrior. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I am conquering all yours and all my enemies. Some of you are history buffs, and you might remember King Louis XIV of France. King Louis XIV, as you know, was also the one who insisted on being called Louis the Great. He had a court. He died in 1715, and his court was one of the most magnificent courts in all of Europe. And his funeral upon his death was just as spectacular. He was actually buried, and at his funeral was in a solid gold casket. Thousands of people filled up this cathedral for King Louis XIV, Louis the Great's funeral. And they were all waiting in hushed silence for the bishop to rise and to speak about Louis the Great. Waiting to hear all the things that would be said about him. And the bishop rises and he goes up to the front and every eye is on him. The place is dimly lit. And at the head of one of the, uh, of the, head of the casket was one single candle that was burning. And the bishop rises and he walks over to the candle and he wets his fingers and he snuffs out the flame. And he turns to the people, the thousands looking at him. And he says, people, only God is great. Do you believe that tonight? That is the message of this passage. And that's the only way that you're ever going to have strength and courage 
to face the struggles and the pain of life. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for making you way too small? Father, would you bring us to repentance over our inadequate views of you? Would you bring us to repentance over our lack of love for people that don't know you? Would you cause us to worship now in hearts of gratitude and thankfulness for who you are? Holy Spirit, uh, change us. Give us courage and confidence. May you give us that as a result of being in your word tonight to face whatever it is that we're going through. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.